welcome to Art of the Score, the podcast that explores, demystifies, and celebrates some of the greatest soundtracks of all time from the world of film, TV, and video games. I'm Andrew Poxon, and in each episode, we'll be joined by Daniel Golding and Nicholas Buck as we check out a soundtrack we love, break down its main themes, explore what makes the score tick, and hopefully impart our love of the world of soundtracks. In episode 23, we jump back into the wondrous world of Harry Potter and explore the music from the third instalment from 2004 with Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, directed by Alfonso Cuaron and score by the little-known newcomer John Williams. And joining me on day leave from Azkaban Prison, having sabotaged Bertie Bot's every flavour beans by inserting pins into some of them, that's an Australian joke, is composer, arranger, orchestrator and conductor who has mastered the swish and the flick. It's Nicholas Buck. How are you doing, Nick? I'm fantastic. Um, God, what a score this is. Uh, John Williams' third and final entry into the Harry Potter franchise and for many people his best, well, the favourite um, and it's really very unique and different to the other two scores, so I can't wait to dissect it. I am very excited as well. And, of course, we have a third. Fresh from choir practice and toad husbandry at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry is writer, critic, Muggle University lecturer and Dementor Taylor to the stars. It's Dan Golding. How are you doing, Dan? Ah, oh, ridiculous as always, <laughs> Andrew. I, no, I have uh, great uh, expecto patronums for this uh, episode. Can we only speak uh, in spells yeah. now? Is that how this is going <laughs> to go down? Yeah. Well, I, I thought that was the agreement. Um, <laughs> uh, for this for this episode, I, I really do, in a non-punny sense, I, I I think this will be a fantastic score to explore. It is, I mean, maybe I should uh, lay lay everything on the line to begin with. It's my favourite John Williams score of this century by some margin. Whoa. And it is, I'm going to say I think it's my favourite score of this century. It's just got everything. It's got everything you could possibly want. It's like the John Williams greatest hits album. Can uh, we go back through the episodes, Nick? And can we check the number of times that Dan has said yeah. this is his score of the century? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I think the only other one that I've made a similar sort of claim is There Will Be Blood. Yeah. And I said it was one of. They're almost the same film. I yeah. think in yeah. other episodes, <laughs> I think in other episodes, Dan, you've actually mentioned this score yeah. about like how excited you are to get yeah. to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't blame you. It's It's... Bloody fantastic, as we mm. say in Australia. Yeah. Now we uh, we actually had a little um, a little Australian joke in there, um, just for overseas listeners. If you're wondering what that's all about, there was a little uh, thing that happened recently where uh, some person uh, was uh, well, they never got caught, did they, Dan? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we're putting pins. Persons unknown. Yeah, persons unknown. Um, we're putting pins into strawberries, mm. and almost single-handedly took down the strawberry industry because then everyone didn't want to eat mm. strawberries that have pins in them. Mm. Uh, anyway, very depressing. So, um, <laughs> like and subscribe. Yeah. <laughs> if you want more local news like that. Yeah. No, uh, for for <laughs> listeners uh, of uh, the score fans, um, you might know somebody who's a Harry Potter fan and uh, perhaps hasn't listened to this uh, podcast. And maybe there's 
stuff that they might discover. They might yeah. be a massive fan. I actually hope that there is things that you can discover here, even if you think you're an expert. Um, we certainly think we're experts. No, we don't. <laughs> um, I always learn a lot from these guys. So please press uh, like, subscribe, do all those things. And uh, Nick, we're on Stitcher now. We I'm are. Loving yeah. being on Stitcher. That's great. That's where great. it's at. <laughs> See you there. Apparently. Uh, we're on uh, Apple Podcasts. Mm. We're on... Um, we're on we... Google Play Music is the new one now. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Someone wrote to me on Twitter, said... Uh, I can't listen to, and um, we solved the problem. Another case solved by Art of the Score. <laughs> yeah. So Google Play Music is also um, available. Wonderful. So uh, hit us up on all of that. And, of course, we are on all of the different social medias. We're on uh, Twitter. We're on Facebook. We are on Instagram. Mm. Uh, the Gram. The Gram. <laughs> the Insta. Uh, so if you would like to ask any questions, if you'd like to get in touch, uh, you can do that via those, uh, those social media platforms. But you can also send us an old school email or an E-L. At contact. At contact, yes. At artofthescore.com.au. Yeah, and uh, we'll get back to you if you have any questions. If you have any comments or if you have any compliments, mm. like the compliments, <laughs> if you have any abuse, maybe leave it for Dan. Dan yeah. at oh, Art of the Score. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. So yeah. we did, uh, back back to the, uh, the episode here, we did discuss uh, doing the second Chamber of Secrets mm. score. And Nick, why did we decide that we wouldn't do Chamber of Secrets? Well, it's a little copy and pasty. It is. It is a bit. It is. A bit. Um, I mean, look, you know, Williams didn't have time to write the whole score. Um, I mean, I don't want to go into long story, but you know, basically, there was a, a lot of uh, reusing of actual like bits from the first film, like mm. whole lifting jobs and just sort of cutting up cues from the first film and just sort of making it fit the picture. So, mm. yes, there are some beautiful new things like, you know, Forks, the yeah. Phoenix and, yeah, um, cool. and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I, I know when I do it in, in, in concert and stuff, there's a lot of crossover. So mm. I just don't think there's a lot to really add. And stylistically, mm. the films are very similar, the first two. Yeah. And, mm. and the music is, whereas number three really takes, you know, um, and Dan, I'm sure you can tell us about this now, but really takes a new path, new director, mm. Um, and Williams, I mean, hardly reuses anything. It's so mm. fresh. Yes. Everything's mm. fresh. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. So, Dan, let's let's get into the uh, the the backstory, the history yeah. of this film, and um, find out why it feels so fresh. What different direction did it go in? Yeah. So it was um, the Harry Potter franchise switching to an eighteen month cycle. Uh, so previously they'd been every year uh, at that point, like uh, the Bond films. Yeah. Back yeah, in the that's day. Right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and Christopher Columbus, or Chris Columbus, who directed the first two, decided that he didn't want to do any more. Um, as he says, he hadn't seen his own kids for dinner in about, uh, you know, for, for about two and a half years. So uh, decided not to return. They assembled a sort of a list of directors they were going to approach. They approached Guillermo del Toro, uh, who directed, you know, Pan's Labyrinth and uh, The Shape of Water, the Oscar winning film from last year. Uh, Mark Forster, who directed Quantum of Solace and Finding Neverland. Uh, M. Night Shyamalan was approached <laughs> at one point. Uh, and then eventually they turned to Alfonso Cuaron. Uh, who is the director of the film. Uh, and he uh, didn't know anything about Harry Potter at this point. And he sort of went and researched it and fell in love with it and decided that he had to do it. He was the director of a few films, uh, A Little Princess, Great Expectations, were his biggest English language hits. He's a Mexican film director. He'd worked on Mexican TV for a while. Um, but he made this great film called Itu Mama Tambien, which basically means and your mother too, um, <laughs> uh, which is a great great road movie and kind of a film about adolescence and I think they sort of thought that Quaron would bring a little more maturity to the series and and help kick um, the the aging 
that the Potter characters undergo throughout the rest of the films um, into gear. They, they, you know, sort of Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone, of course, as it's really called, uh, and Chamber of Secrets, uh, you know, they feel very similar in age, whereas yeah. the, all the other films, they kind of visibly age. They, they almost feel like they were, like Lord of the Rings, they were yeah. shot at the same time yeah, and yeah. they were just chopped up into two yeah. films, whereas this one is, it takes... All sorts of right-hand turns yeah. in tone, yeah. in even just in basics like layout of Hogwarts. Yeah, we have right. a new, I mean, I know this wasn't on purpose, but we have a new Dumbledore. We have all yeah. sorts of new things that happen yeah. in this film. And, and the clothing, they're, they're very, a lot of big casual dress yeah. in, yeah. This clo- in this yeah, film yeah, yeah. is much more apparent. Mm. So apparently he, uh, he asked the three uh, actors, you know, the three leads, uh, Daniel Radcliffe, uh, etc., uh, to write a sort of personal reflective essay on their characters as kind of homework about, oh. you know, to getting to know them. Uh, and uh, Rupert Grint, who plays Ron, just didn't do it. <laughs> and, and and he said, why didn't you do it? And he said, well, I'm Ron and Ron wouldn't have done it. Yeah. So, <laughs> and he was like, yeah, okay. Uh, that Yeah, you, that Fair makes goal. sense. Um, <laughs> oh, Harry. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Quaron, of course, since Azkaban has gone on to be one of the big directors of Hollywood, um, has directed uh, Children of Men, Gravity, and he's got a new film out this year called Roma, which uh, I don't know when this podcast is going to come out. I may look uh, Nostradamus-like, but um, <laughs> it, it's, you know people are suggesting that it's got a fair shot at at least being nominated for a Best Picture Oscar at the Academy Awards. So we will see, but he is certainly a highly talented director and one of the most, if not the, the, the most sort of highly rated directors to have a go at a Potter film, I think. So it's no surprise that it's turned out to be such a classic in a lot of people's minds. Um, it's such a surprise, yeah. isn't it, that you go from a, you know, you have a franchise that is multi-million, multi-billion mm. dollar franchise. The first two movies are big. Mm. The books, I don't know what book we're up to by the time 2004 happens, but we're a fair way down the books. Mm. So, mm. you know, we the world knows how big Harry Potter is at yeah. this point. And it does surprise me that the studios go, well, let's... Let's take a punt. Really, I mean, I guess it's a punt, but it's it's a massive tone shift. It's yeah. all these things. How they manage to decide that we are going to allow this guy to come in and sort of mess with it yeah. so much is sort of really surprising. And in yeah. some ways, what it's almost what Star Wars has sort of, mm. I guess, promised with these new directors that have all been fired, and then you bring in the same yeah. director afterwards. <laughs> uh, it's it's that same idea of of you know bringing in someone to sort of shake things up. Yeah. But so early on, it's not like we're talking film six here. Yeah. They they bring it in at, at film three. I, I find that just so fascinating. Yeah, and the way that uh, Harry Potter eventually kind of found its director. I mean, it went from Quaron to Mike Newell, who sort of had previously done sort of British, you know, polite, l- lovely rom-coms and stuff like <laughs> that. But, you know, not, not Harry Potter really. Um in the end, to the same director who, who you know, they, they went time and time and again with for the last, I think, four movies and now he's done uh, all of the the Fantastic Beasts films. David yes, Yates. Right. David Yates is the director. Um, and so, you know, it's sort of in reverse of finding their safe director towards the end of the series yeah, and kind totally. of experimenting yeah. with a few interesting choices early yeah. on. Mm. And I feel like, do you guys think this feels like the least British Yes. The oh yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, like just as as a film, um, I, yes. I know that like they get even darker later on, but especially after the first two, yeah, it really, 
and it could be all those things you mentioned from style, layout, costuming, whatever, mm. even to the music yeah. in some ways. Um, yeah, it feels less... And it's not like they have American actors no. throughout there. I mean, it's everyone still has the accent, but yeah, you're right. It doesn't feel British like the first mm. two feel like it, you know, it could be just on the other side of the Thames. Like it's, yeah. you know, it's really Absolutely, something. yeah. Right. I mean, you know, it, it's. I think he, the influences are... Uh, that Quaron is working with. I mean, the film ends with a freeze frame, which to me yeah, feels really jarring for the mm. style of the film. But it's, I mean, I'm sure it's a reference to um, Francois Truffaut's The 400 Blows, which is one of the most famous films ever made about kind of childhood. And it ends famously with a with a freeze frame, which was for the time. This is French New Wave. This is the the 1960s. Uh, actually, I think it might have been 59 was The 400 Blows. Um was um, radical, revolutionary. The idea of a freeze frame was just so new and yeah, right. so different and is really one of the sort of hallmarks of that film. And so even then, you know, Quaron, instead of, you know, looking to the, the, the establishments of Hollywood storytelling or the, you know, the, the, the British greats that we've seen beforehand or, you know, the way that the previous films sort of existed in their own universe of assembling the, the great transmedia, uh, you know, um, gang of, of great British actors from film and TV all in one cast, uh, you know, he's looking to art cinema, to European French films. You yeah. Know, it's, it's interesting, yeah. Yeah, I think for that reason this film, at least for me, is the most interesting Harry Potter. Yeah. I think it could be the most successful Harry Potter, yeah. even though as books I don't like this one as much as some of the others. Mm. Uh, yeah, I think it's really great. And, of course, Nick, you've got John Williams just hitting it out of the park. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, you know, the score has matured. It still has some of those themes from the original, or original two at least. And uh, but he really just like you said, he's got time now <laughs> yeah. to sort of really settle in and, and you know come up with some new material. And I also think that you know Williams had worked with Chris Columbus, you know, the director of the first two films, previously. Like you know, the Home Alone films is a classic yeah. example. Um, and you really feel that it's it was like an extension of of a bit of that sound, a bit mm. of that stylings. I, I sort of wonder here how much Quaron challenged Williams. Yeah. Um, I don't know actually much about their the specifics of their collaboration, how fussy he was, how much freedom he gave Williams. But there's, there's, yeah, there's a real freshness um, and, and a sort of a different approach for, for many things. Look, we're not going to really touch on really what is almost the main one sort of recurring theme, which of course is Hedwig's themes. You know, it opens the film, it closes the film. I think we hear it sort of once um, sort of throughout in a sort of transitional mm. sequence. You also hear it, you hear it. little little elements of it sort of creep in. Occasionally, or, yeah, yeah. Occasionally, certainly when Hedwig's on the screen. Mm. And actually this is this is just, we'll, we'll talk about this and then move on to the actual um, new themes. But uh, I always want to call it, you know, Harry Potter's theme even, mm. you know, or at least mm. the world of Harry Potter's theme because, it, you know, it starts every film and it's the most iconic melody from any of the Harry Potters and it's the theme that that follows throughout every single film. So I always want to call it, you know, like the same way that Star Wars has, well, Luke's theme, which is really Star Wars theme and so on. I think about it the same. But in this film, John Williams still is sticking to the idea that it's Hedwig's theme yeah. because every time Hedwig is on the screen or at least there's elements of that, you hear the little bit of the, um, you know, that melody, that Hedwig's mm. theme, it comes in. 
And I'm like, oh, yeah, he's still thinking about it as, as <laughs> yeah. Hedwig's music. Yeah. Whereas the other composers, I think later on, uh, yeah. correct me if yeah. I'm wrong, I don't think they do. I think it becomes the Harry Potter thing. I think it's, yeah. their, it's yeah. their token wink to, you yeah. know, to a link to the past. So yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, so um, yeah, we're not going to go into that. And, of course, you can check out our full analysis of the uh, Philosopher's Stone in um, one of our earlier episodes, and you can sort of get up to date on that if you haven't done that yet. But uh, So we're going to skip all of that stuff, and we're just going to dive straight into the new music. And, Nick, where's the best place to start? Well, look, the defining theme of this film, and I think one that was written maybe even for the trailers or for a bit of promotion for the film, is this piece of music called Double Trouble. And it's, it's a choral piece, I guess, primarily. Um, Williams writes it for a choir. In fact, they even sing it in, within the film, like the school choir sings his piece. But it really becomes the backbone of this story. And I think that it's very dark. And to me, it's almost like that's the thing that pulls you into this. Um, it's quite a mystery, this film. I know, all the, I know all of them are, but there's a real sense of, of menace that starts to grow in with the whole serious black character and, you know, the whole... We've all of a sudden got like a new venue, this talk of this, this, this Azkaban prison mm. offshore somewhere, you know, with the crashing waves. And it's quite kind of dark and you really get a sense that, that trouble is looming. And I think the fact that it's called Double Trouble is very, is very apt. And just so people know what we're talking about, the very first time it appears is when the kids all catch the train to Hogwarts and we get a very sort of a sneaky presentation of it. And all of a sudden, what you get there are two of the real key instruments of this film, which are the recorders and the harpsichord. And uh, we'll get to the harpsichord later because a key, a key uh, character hmm. basically has his theme played by this instrument. But the recorders, you know, we spoke about them briefly in the first film, how they sort of, you know, featured here and there, but they really get a lot of work in this thing. And I think what it does is really give it that age-old kind of renaissance medieval sound. Um, you know, recorders, we all played them in primary school. Um, but here they're, they're really kind of deftly used and it's, it's, it's really fantastic. So this theme, let's have a look at it. We always, um, I think we said in the Force Awakens episode, it sounds a bit like Ray's theme, even though this mm. came first. But it's this little kind of motif here. Okay, and then it kind of has a second line. third line and then a sort of this final kind of tag bit and Williams has his great lyrics something wicked this way comes which really almost became like the catchphrase of the film well it's also from Macbeth um, the lyrics are actually more or less literally taken he's played around with them a little bit yeah. um, but they're from the witches scene uh, in Macbeth yeah um, which is yeah are they used in the books uh, no, 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 no. This is no. an invention fully for the film. And, and actually, the, when you said before that it was used for promotional purposes, it's because this music is very unusually for Williams, was written obviously before the film was in, produ uh, in, in shooting, in production, because they needed to perform it on set. 
Yeah. Um, so this is before he's written any of the other the music for the choir yeah. version. But it's yeah, it's double double toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble, and there's sort of you know you hear when they do some of the later versions of it um, in eye of Newton, toe of frog, wool of bat, and tongue of dog, etc. etc. Yeah, that's great. Um, so really, really. I mean, that's all straight from Shakespeare. Shakespeare yeah. Mm. And where does uh, Something Wicked This Way comes from? I mean, it's yeah. Macbeth as well, yeah, but that's, it's that's within Macbeth. the same part with the witches? No, that's not actually from the lyrics. I think mm. that's um, that's just a, um, a, a general quote that's spoken. I forget. It's, I, did, I did study Macbeth in high school, but I can't remember who Didn't we all, Dan? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Any Macbeth yeah. fans, uh, you know, right, right on yes, in no. and, and correct us about our, our Shakespeare knowledge. Yeah. Um, but it is it is both sort of uh, two slightly separate quotes from Shakespeare that yeah. have been sort of built into the one song there. I mean, why this quote is so good is because the next time we hear this theme is the, the school choir um, singing it and it ends with this line, something wicked this way comes, which is great because it's, it's, it's a diegetic piece of music, but it's actually telling the story of... They're kind of talking about serious, yeah, sort totally. of impending yep. wickedness coming. So it's it's really kind of playing a narrative thing as well. So let's hear the choir. bit better than our version of Hoggy Hoggy Hogwarts. Uh, I don't know, Dan. Don't sell yourself short. That was that was a uh, highly complimented part of yeah. our previous episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> and what what I find interesting about that is that that's really the only time we hear these lyrics mm. ever in the mm. film and hear it sung. And it's it kind of comes in halfway through the verse. Yep. So you really get a sense that it's part of the story. It's just like they were just doing a little performance in mm. a, in in the main. Um, is it the food hall? What, yeah. what's with, that hall? The great hall. The, the great, great hall. Great hall. With, yeah. with frogs, I think. As yeah, well. yeah, with yeah. the toads. Singing. Yeah, 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 toads. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's why my joke at the start, Dan, worked. Yeah. Because you come from choir practice and toad husbandry. Ah, ah. Yeah. <laughs> so interrelated activities. Yeah. As, yeah. as we all knew. Yeah. Um, and look, you know, um, Dumbledore gets up and then talks about the fact that Sirius Black has escaped from Azkaban, and we get a, a more sort of subtle presentation, a couple of different harmonies. It's a bit more elegant here. And just seeing how Williams is sort of developing it. And again, we're getting the, the recorders and the harpsichord really playing a key role in this. You know, it's nothing is huge and symphonic. It's all kind of delicate, light. And I mean, 
I always think of the Adams family whenever I hear harpsichord, yeah. you know. You know, yeah. on that sort of <laughs> octave harpsichord then. And you know, which is the more comical way, but it's really playing off that I guess the like, the horror, yeah. even hammer horror kind of thing from, yeah. from, from from an earlier time. I mean it's it's definitely an antiquated instrument and in you know, yeah. it's, it's not really in modern music and by modern music we could draw a line under the sort of the eighteenth century really. Yeah. Yeah. Um but it you know, it's also an interesting instrument because of the way the I mean it's not hammered like a piano, so piano, you know, is is actually it's called the pianoforte, which means literally like soft loud in that yeah. you can play softly and you can play loudly. Whereas mm. the harpsichord, because it's um it's a plucked. plucked. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like one volume. Yeah. Like on or off. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So it's quite a different sort of mood, even though it's a keyboard instrument. Yeah. Now, all the bits we played so far have been in pretty straight sort of 4-4 four, four time, 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. But then what Williams does is introduces a few um, other sort of Renaissance medieval instruments mm. and he makes it into 6-8. So all of a sudden we go from into this sort of more lilting thing. Etc. Etc. Mm. And it kind of changes the mood and and yeah, it gives it almost like a, a sort of a, a quiet, speedy waltz kind of feel. Like he's been given permission to embrace the the, the weirdness of Harry Potter. If the, <laughs> the first two films yeah. are these kind of like children's tales that just happen to be set in this kind of magical land, it's kind of Azkaban is like it's they're witches yeah. and wizards and yeah. they like toads and you know doing all sorts of strange things yeah. with fantastic animals and it, you know <laughs> it's, it's sort of this is the music of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wanted to ask the question with with both the uh, the lyrics being mm. from the witches mm. in Macbeth. Uh, and this sort of time period, which I'm sort of going to say is sort of Renaissance, sort of Baroque mm. with the harpsichord. Mm. Um, and I'm going to play you some examples um, later on about that. But, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if for this world, is this... Mm. Is this sort of stuff like some genuine history? Like if you <laughs> if you've got the the witches and the double double toil and trouble, you know, is that real for them? I know it's a yeah. play by you know Shakespeare, and um, you know he's sort of potentially you know supposedly making things up. But do you think within this world it's real, and they're actually yeah. they're actually they're singing this is an important song from our past? Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> oh, it's me Potter yeah, theorizing no, I, I here. It could totally be yeah. that. Like yeah. that—that's yeah. their folk music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. singing yeah. about witches. It's just normal, you know. For yeah. us, yeah. it's like oh, it's a bit kind of kooky. Yeah. You know, Halloween's really big at the moment. Yeah, yeah. for them, it's just everyday life. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, J.K. Rowling uh, has, you know, deliberately incorporated real-world events mm. uh, into the kind of parallel history of 
the Wizarding World, um, with you know sort of World War Two being it's you know by implication to be this kind of paralleled by the rise of Grindelwald and you know which mm. is the the current films, um, and I think you know there's especially in those reference books there's all sorts of discussions of sort of the intersection between our world and what we think of as kind of myth, yeah, and the real world. So I wouldn't be surprised at all if the suggestion is that you know actually Macbeth is uh is actually a a real tale yeah Yeah. exactly yeah that's really interesting Mm. and do you guys hear in that performance we just played the 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 instrument sounds a bit kind of honky and that's because it's it's uh that lead instrument is is what's called a crumb horn you guys know what a crumb horn is it's like a basically a renaissance oboe so it's like a wooden great yeah, a wooden thing with a kind of curves at the end. And uh, instead of trombones, they use what's called a sackbutt. Yes. Mm. One of my favorite instrument names, sackbutt. Yeah. <laughs> Kids out there, go up to your teacher and say, uh, I want to play the sackbutt. Yeah. <laughs> see what they say. Which again is a sort of Renaissance and Baroque style uh, trombone. Yeah. And you, you, yeah, Google this stuff because they're really, really kind of cool looking instruments. And it's great that they, they, they get a feature. Yeah. And again, with the sort of uh, tambourine, isn't oh, it? Oh, Dan's favorite medieval instrument is yeah, tambourine you know, you and finger cymbals. Yeah. You, 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 <laughs> <laughs> you you pop that in as your as your rhythm, and suddenly you feel like you're celebrating yeah. the you know the May Day or whatever yeah. around a what were those po- uh, poles that they used to dance around Maypole Maypole there yeah. you go yeah, yeah. yeah. Maypole yeah. yeah that that's 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 and the root of that you go to you know any English castle where they have like a you know a mock jousting competition or a little play mm. you know mm. they'll have a couple of troubadour singers and then you know a tambourine a little a little yeah. crumb horn or something. Mm. And that's all, that's all you need. You're, yeah. You're sort of thrown back 400 years. I, I remember <laughs> when I saw this film at the time, I was sort of like, what on earth is going on with all this weird music? I, you know, I don't like it. And then over the years, I've sort of grown to appreciate the just fundamental strangeness that John Williams was allowed slash encouraged to include, yeah. the, you know, this... Very strange musical element, yeah. which is and not, it's not what you expect from yeah. necessarily Williams. You expect yeah. you know, big, big film, big yeah, themes, yeah. big sort stuff, of timeless yeah. music in a way. Yeah, whereas yeah. this is very much of a genre. And of course, the the really the overriding sound for this these um, uh, period, mm. you know, pieces is is the recorder. Yeah. So you know that that instrument that every kid, at least in Australia, I don't know if this happens overseas. I suspect it does. Mm. Uh, you know, you learn how to play recorder, and then you know everyone's a bit of a joke instrument, and you ah eh, recorder. But you know, there are people who play recorder professionally. Yeah. And uh, that's certainly how it sounds. Because <laughs> yeah. they don't have those plastic ones. No, it's true. These are all wood. <laughs> I, I want to hear yeah. a professional play the plastic one and make it sound good. <laughs> They're just horrible. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, I, I think the the instrumentation in here is is really key uh, to sort of giving it a real sort of folky and like you said, another worldly yeah. sort of aspect. And more than anything, this this whole double trouble theme and and the instrumentation and everything is the most it, like it. it Bounces between the movie world, as in like the soundtrack, and the the world of Harry Potter. Because when they go into some of the pubs, you know they're playing those instruments in the background. Mm. You know, like it really is. Yeah. It's it's bled into the soundtrack. This whole thing far more Definitely. than any of the other soundtracks Definitely have happened agree. before. Yeah. Mm. Um, I want to play a cue called "Befriending the Hippogriff," and the hippogriff we all know is Buckbeak, uh, Hagrid's. I wouldn't say pet. Is he a pet? Oh yeah, he's, he's got, got Ar- Aragog. No, Hagrid, Hagrid has got many pets. Hagrid has many <laughs> pets. <laughs> yeah. Well, when we meet Buckbeak and uh, Harry sort of, I think, walks up to it quite carefully, we get a really kind of sinister but sneaky and cheeky version played on clarinets. 
Um, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I love that this is also the generalized theme of the movie. Rather, You can imagine a different version of this score that has this theme as kind of Sirius's theme. Sirius Black being, yeah, the, yeah, being, sure. being the something wicked in a way. Mm. But, you know, of course, as we all know, having seen the film, that he's not the villain of the film. Mm. Uh, and... You know, it, it, the music then becomes, and the way it's implemented, especially here, where it's to do with Buckbeak, who's nothing to do with, well, I mean, in a way, eventually becomes aligned with Sirius, but certainly not at this point in the film. Um, and is it's not, their fears. Yeah, exactly. It's this generalized fear. You know, the grim is mm. coming for us, the wolf, mm. uh, sort of a fate death that we don't really know what it is um and that's you know it's one of the reasons why i think a lot of people look really fondly on this film as well is that it's not really about voldemort trying to kill harry and failing again as is the plot of so many of the, yeah. the other yeah, films. yeah 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 it's um quite self-contained in that sense yeah it's mm. nice isn't it um we get some really cool uh, twisted development um, in a queue called the Portrait Gallery. This is where um, they're kind of running up and down those moving stairs looking at all the portraits trying to find the Vicar of Dibley. What's her <laughs> name? Uh, sorry, the fat, I think she's just called the Fat Lady. Yeah, in, 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 the, in books, the books. Yeah. 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 Um, so this is uh, Searching for the Fat Lady. So we're starting to get a bit of orchestra come in, yeah. but it's you know it's muted brass. It's kind of quite dicey. Bop, bop, bop. And every little statement of that secondary theme, bop, 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 whatever it is, um, it's almost like you know they're running to a different bit. Check mm. this painting. Let's check that painting. Check that painting. It's it's nice. And the uh, the recorders are, are there's is there two of them playing in unison, but they're slightly out of tune. Yeah, is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. and often there's like I mean people don't know there's like. Um, there's tenor recorders, alto recorders, soprano recorders. Mm. You know, basically getting from big, big to small, um, and and all all three are used in in this film. Right, because I mean, it's uh, this I guess is once again mimicking the action that's going on. Is this is this is the scene, isn't it, where there's been a serious black has yeah. sort of attacked um, Gryffindor's, um, you know. Fat lady portrait, whatever yeah, it is, yeah. the door, and they're now searching for us. And now everything is sort of twisted and out of tune. And it's, mm. it's, you know, there's those stabs, which I guess counts for people bouncing around, mm. but also the, the sinister nature of what's happened. And this, I don't know, it's sort of quite cool. And like I said, I just really noticed those those uh, recorders just being really out of tune with themselves yeah. You yeah. Know, between each other. Yeah. Um, and, you know, every time the little uh, part of the melody is played, Nick, it's played in a different key yeah, as well. Yeah, I was well. going yeah. yeah. So they're, they're just cycling through different key centres. So it's utterly out of whack. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, what, what we haven't really heard much in the film up until this point is the Celeste. I mean, apart from mm. the opening of the film, which plays Hedwig's theme, um, you know, the Celeste was such an identifiable part of the Harry Potter sound. And uh, Williams doesn't use it much at all in this film. But there is a little bit where we actually get this a bit of this double trouble theme on the Celeste um, when they're kind of looking. Um, I think Dumbledore comes and they're looking at the, the beautiful ceiling where all the kids are sleeping. 
This is why I think this theme reminds me of Ray's theme. Or the other way around. Ray's theme reminds me of this because, <laughs> you know, one came before the other. Uh, you know, it's this, this sort of feel. It's the, the Celeste, the... Um, uh, remind me of Ray's, Ray's bit, Nick. I'll put him on the spot here. And this is... Yeah, I mean, look, you know, obviously they're not the same, mm. but there are similarities between them. Even mm. in that particular cue, it has the, you know, the, the uh, what would you call it, the um, the Darth Vader sort of... Yeah, th there's that sort of oh, harmony. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, kind of yeah, 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 yeah. So... Yeah, and it has a bit of you know uh, Hans Zimmerness to it because it's oh, in D yeah. minor. Ha <laughs> ha, get it? Uh, that was a joke. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, you're, you're right. And I think I think this bit they're talking about Harry as he's like yeah. sleeping below. And so what's interesting is that it's Williams mm. appropriating really kind of what became Harry's theme sort of for the franchise, mm. like you discussed at the opening, um, when he's there, kind of, and they're talking about him. Yeah, so it's like it's like the Celeste is Harry's instrument. Yeah, in, that's in, interesting. In many ways, I like that. And of course, the Celeste, uh, you know, to sort of reiterate for people that, you know, really harks to that sort of music box idea. Yeah. It's sort of childlike. It certainly works from the point of view of people sleeping. Mm. You can imagine the music box in a child's room sort of playing to put a lullaby to yeah. put the kids to sleep. Tchaikovsky so, being the most famous yeah. use of Celeste before Harry with Potter. The, with the Nutcracker. So, yeah, yeah so it's, it's sort of really nice choice. And like you said, I find it really fascinating that John Williams has very consciously decided to step away from that Celeste sound in this particular one and therefore it makes it even more interesting at the times when he decides to bring it in. Mm. Um, and like you said, I think is this, you know, the Harry Potter instrument as opposed to the melody. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's nice. And look, that's kind of it for the Double Trouble theme. It kind of disappears a bit towards the second half of the film, mm. which, yeah, I, I, I don't mind. Maybe it's interesting. Maybe like mm. their fears aren't, aren't really realised because it turns yeah. out Sirius isn't a bad guy. So there's no yeah. more need for it. Or they, they, they start... Facing their fears, maybe yeah. and that's why it disappears. Like yeah. other other things, or, come up. or even just they're confronted by them. Their, their fears, yeah. you know, if they're realised, then we don't need a foreboding theme anymore <laughs> to hint at <laughs> yeah, them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, before we move on, I I thought that it might just be worthwhile um, playing some actual Renaissance music. Yes. So that we can hear how close it is. Actually, really close. Uh, so I I. This is not a very famous piece. I actually am not a, an expert of Renaissance music, but uh, this is a particular piece that had uh, recorders in it and the sorts of instrumentation that we're talking about. And I thought it might be interesting just to have a quick listen to some actual Renaissance music to sort of compare and contrast.
the kind of music you expect to hear sort of just wafting around if you go to England and visit like Hampton Court Palace or something <laughs> like that, you know, where Henry yeah. VIII is resident. In Australia, we don't really have any castles. We've got Cryo Castle yes. in, at, just outside of Ballarat, which yep. for anybody who's uh, been to Victoria will know is a, a very, very um, unsuccessful imitation of a castle. Yep. Um, but got, yeah. My house is pretty old. Yeah. <laughs> it was built in, I think, the 70s then. So, yeah. you well, know, there's there some go. history there. There you go. <laughs> Do you guys reckon in that bit you played, Andrew, yep. there's no harpsichord and instead the plucked instruments are either sort of like a guitar or a lute yep. or yeah. something, which I find it interesting because it, it sort of romanticises it a bit more. And I wonder if, mm. like, if Williams used, you know, recorders and guitar, mm. which would give it more like a sort of Spanish-Italian romantic yeah, feel. Yeah, it does feel more folky and romantic, mm. I yeah. think. Um, with the, the harpsichord, I don't know, most people I speak to like, don't like harpsichord. It's, yeah. it's a kind of a bit of a harsh instrument. It so it adds that edge. What I love about a lot of Renaissance music, I'm really taking a right-hand turn here, mm. Nick, is that, uh, you know, you have the melody there in a sort of minor key, but they always finish on those major chords. Mm. Right at the end. So yeah. instead of sort of resolving on the minor chord, I wondered, I'm going to put you on yeah. the spot here. Can you play? Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. So can you play the double toil and trouble, the double double, and try and finish on a major chord at the end to make it full Renaissance mode? Sure. It did quite work. It did quite work, but I liked it. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm shuddering at how awful that sounded. <laughs> I, th I think, um, actually, b before we move on, uh, I don't know if there'll be a, a natural time to bring it up, so I just want to bring up, I think, the most Renaissance cue in the whole film, which is not this melody. It's not Double Trouble. Yep. But it is Hagrid the Professor, and I thought I, I really feel like we can't, Discuss this movie and not throw this in because this is the this is the the most Renaissance, you know, <laughs> the most uh, folk fair sort of that we get. Give um, it to us. Yeah, here we go. There was the major chord. It oh, came yeah. in there. I thought it was the Hogwarts car horn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, yeah, that's basically sack butts and crumb horns. Yeah. <laughs> just jamming it out. So, I mean, there's no West, sorry, Western. There's no kind of anything contemporary in there. It's just real stock Renaissance instruments. Yeah. Can I, can I put a challenge out there to our listeners? That yes. some, whatever time of the year you find yourself listening to this podcast, mm. your challenge is to get the word crumb horn <laughs> or sack butt into a conversation. Yeah. Sometime during the week. If you manage to do it, please tweet right into <laughs> us because I want <laughs> I want someone to put crumb horn into a sentence. I love crumb horn. Yeah, it's a great word. It's a great word. <laughs> I mean, I just I, I I know I'm a broken record, but it's just I mean, I just still can't really fathom that. I mean, and for me, maybe it's my own experience as someone who was a big fan of the first Harry Potter films and their music and everything, then whacked on Azkaban and got to a track like that and was just like. What is going on? <laughs> what, how, how did this music get here? Which is like, I mean, there's nothing sort of diffused or, you know, there's no element, no attempt to make that sort of more palatable. No. It's no. just 
They just straight, present it straight up. I, I thought that like that when I first heard that cue, I thought, oh, it's got to be some kind of source music, just right? Piece from the 1500s that yeah, was or, found. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm. Or like something that's played in the background, like as though it's actually being played. But it's, yeah. that's off the score. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, amazing. Uh, one thing that I was going to yes. include is that uh, so Nick has brought in uh, Birdie Bot's every flavored bean. Is this uh, our snack they break? They mean yeah. every flavor. Yeah. <laughs> and and the best thing about this is usually they would have like little instructional guides as to the taste, but Nick bought these from uh, Disneyland Tokyo. Disneyland. No, Disneyland. How dare you? Universal dare you Studios. Stand. Sorry. Dan. Whoops. <laughs> the oh, Wizarding dear. World of Harry Potter. Oh, That's okay. Oh, That's okay. oh, what a terrible mistake. <laughs> um, uh, so the instructions. Unsubscribe. Yeah. <laughs> Nice one, Dan. Oh, terrible. Uh, oh, that's sorry, go on. So we're saying on this podcast, uh, and uh, so the so the instructions, the guide is in Japanese. Yes. So it truly is a lucky dip. Hey, uh, and I'm so gonna, we'll I'm gonna try one. We can move on. And vomit flavored or bogey? Those Yeah. Well, look, I'm gonna choose one that's sort of. Um, Oh, it looks horrible. Yeah, it, it looks that brown. Looks bad, it's sort of brownish, pinkish, speckled with white. Anyway, right, here, we, here go. we go. Andrew, would you like one? Okay, yeah, yeah. Serve me up a, an every flavor bean. Um, what have mm. I got here? Mm, it's not a good one. No. Oh, I've got, oh, I got a good-looking one. This is one's pink. Uh, almost certainly strawberry. I haven't put it in my mouth yet. Oh, mine's a color of soap. It's like the kind of or that that Colgate blue toothpaste-looking thing. I don't know good. what mine is, but it is extremely unpleasant. I think it's a raspberry. Did you get a booger one? Well, I got soap. I've had this before, actually. I, I kind of dig it. <laughs> mine. Hmm. Oh, God, the aftertaste is awful. Whoa, <laughs> that's, that's, oh, um, that was a bad idea. Whose idea was this? Anyway, let's move on to the next thing. I love that we've now think, combined the podcast. I think that was blood. I think blood. That, oh, gross. Anyway. <laughs> 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 Oh, that segment worked really well, Dan. <laughs> Just took uh, 23 episodes for us to eat on, on air. Oh, well, we've um, already drunk on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look, let's move on to the other real key musical theme of this film. And it's uh, it's really, I guess, the, it's, a, it's a piece called A Window to the Past, as John Williams calls it. And it really becomes this theme of memory, of thinking about Harry's parents, um, and we actually first hear it very subtly near the beginning of the film where the camera kind of has a little close-up on a picture frame next to Harry's bed. Um, but very importantly, it, the Dursleys. At the Dursleys place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nick, is that on Celeste or is that piano and something no, else? That's it's Celeste. Yeah, this is Celeste. Harry's instrument. Yeah, again. Harry's instrument. Yeah, okay. So great. interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So this is, yeah, in a, a six eight sort of meter. It sometimes goes into nine eight, but it really has this lilting. And we just get that little kind of hint of it at the start. But really we don't hear it again for quite a while until we're sort of introduced to Professor Lupin who kind of had a little chat with Harry on that, on that sort of Hogwarts bridge mm. and, um, you know, lets Harry know that he knew Lily, et cetera, et cetera. And they, they kind of had a little sort of, I guess, a little remembering moment about her. And again, huge feature for, for the solo recorder here. 
That's so beautiful. I yeah. this is my favorite melody of the um, the, the, the movie. Mm. Um, maybe not my favorite cue because mm. that's coming later. But I don't know. Whenever this comes in, it really works for what it is. I mean, yeah. it's this um, you know this sadness of a memory, yep. um, the melancholy sort of idea. It's just really beautiful. And you know what? I I my biggest disappointment later in the in the series was when. Um, I liked a lot of what Alexander Desplat did in the last two films, but he wrote a theme for Lily and I mm. sort of really wished he would have brought this yeah. one back because yeah. I think that it really captures that, you know, missing, you know, missing your parents. I mean, you know, we know Harry's wasn't really, you know, sort of orphaned, I guess, by having his parents killed. Um, and this really just tugs at the heartstrings in such a beautiful way. Yeah. Um, and, and there, it, there yeah. are some really beautiful performances of it. I mean, I think, I think Williams is sometimes by his critics – of which do exist apparently. I've 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 never met any myself, but <laughs> um, uh, you know, sort of perhaps his music tending towards the sentimental. Um, yeah. And, and and but I think that this, as a kind of sentimental theme, I think this really treads the line beautifully between sort of tugging at the heartstrings too much and doing it just enough to give it a, a really kind of nostalgic beauty. Yeah. Can we can we touch on that really quickly? The idea of something being too sentimental. Yeah. I I don't understand that as a critique. Maybe I'm just a, a schmaltzy guy. But <laughs> I you know if something's well, so as to make you sort of feel like something, why is it bad that it makes you feel like that too much? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I think probably for for somebody making that critique, the experience would be of kind of almost like a like a alienation from the emotion because they feel its presence too strongly and they and it yeah. has the inverse effect. Uh, right, I, I think, right. yeah, when people feel... Like, no one likes to feel manipulated, even mm. though we all love movies and are totally manipulated by mm. by film. By every aspect I, of Yeah, it. I think there are some people who, who don't like it. They like much more subtlety in their film, in their music. Um, and, yeah, if they feel they're being manipulated, they're going to be like, uh-uh. Yeah, right. Yeah, I just want to feel that naturally. Um, I just think this is perfect, though. Yeah, I agree. Mm. I agree. Um, but you know, it's interesting because it's it's sort of about the mother character, and um, I think a few years earlier was a film called Angela's Ashes, yes. which opens with God almost an identical kind of G minor outline. This is the Harry Potter one, and now this is Angela's Ashes. This time the recorder is replaced by piano, but there's a real similar vibe. Ashes. I think that was one of the non-Star Wars or Indiana Jones soundtracks that I listened to the most um, yeah. as, as, as a teen. Um, but you know, having listened to it so many times, only in this context of this podcast and that playing just then did I realize that, that it's the, the Darth Vader change oh, is no, there again. It's totally a thing. Yeah. yeah. The, yeah. Empire, the Empire is everywhere, Nick. 
Yeah. Totally is. Yeah. My God. So Darth Vader is actually an Irish mother yeah. or something. <laughs> I just think it's the the long hand of the the long hand of the Empire yeah. <laughs> stretches everywhere, Dad. Oh wow! Look, I mean, we talk about it over and over. It's this Williams and the Sixth Chords. When yep. it's romantic, yeah. he goes to the you know, you know, or he'll do leaps of the six. And when he wants something evil, he goes to the minor version of, mm. of the sixth. So, mm. I mean, yeah. look, many other composers do it as well, but it's yeah, it's. It's right there. Can we go back to a window to the past? <laughs> yes, the thing we're actually yeah, talking the thing about. we're talking yep. about. Uh, what I thought might be, a, and Nick can sort of stare daggers at me because I'm just going to put him on the spot all day. I've decided, <laughs> is can you play the melody by itself, and then can you play with the harmony in it? Because the this is why I love John Williams. He he writes a beautiful melody. That's no doubt. It's the fact that he is able to sort of turn what is often simple melodies, which are never simple to write, as we all know, but uh, he, he makes a simple melody and then he just puts in these chords that just makes me go, ah, so great, because it turns a simple thing mm. into like a really complex thing. Mm. Um, so, Nick, are you able to give us that, that melody by itself again? Sure. And then with the chords. It's a nice melody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're very simple chords. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of one, five, one. But mm. what's interesting is that he plays with the minor version of chord five. So usually we kind of hear, mm. you know, is your stock standard one, five, one in a minor key. Here, if, we, if I play the minor version of five, we get this. Mm. You know, he just does, does it up here delicate way yeah and it actually um it hints on what i want to talk about next which is that um i think in a previous episode might have been the conan one i, I mentioned mm. uh the sort of folks on greens leaves um this chip which also has a minor version of that chord five, which we heard at the end. Mm. So I want to play a bit of um, window to the past going into Green's Leaves and you'll really hear yeah, a similarity in the harmony there as well as these sort of um, what I call the Amsterdam rhythm. Amsterdam, Amsterdam. For some reason when I was a kid <laughs> at high school, the conductor was always like, Amsterdam, Amsterdam. I remember vividly. I'm sure I think it's that's not, just you, Nick. Uh, maybe it's just me. Maybe it's not officially known as the Amsterdam rhythm. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. It is now, though. It, it is now. Mm. There you go. Out of the score, another case. <laughs> so here we go. Um, you'll, yeah, hit a bit of Potter, Green's Leaves, and back into some Potter. Green's leaves. Mm. 
what that comparison brings out is the the dance like qualities of of the rhythm. Yeah, it's kind of a three four style thing, um, yeah. which I hadn't really noticed. I mean, again, I've listened to this many 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 times, but not really realized that that's kind of what it is getting at. At least, Did, is that the Vaughan Williams version? It's the Vaughan Williams. It? Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Which you know, you know, English yeah. composer, very pastoral. Yeah. It's it's. I mean, he is influenced. He's a composer we actually haven't talked about much, but he yeah. has influenced heaps. Of, of composers, yeah. especially Williams. He's up yeah. there with Algar and Prokofiev and them as, as having a huge influence. And it mm. also um, reinforces the idea of the, the Renaissance period. Mm. Yeah. green sleeves. I mean, I, you know, don't quote me on this because I haven't come prepared with this, but green sleeves being a Renaissance piece, it possibly is one of those folk tunes that they don't quite know the, the um, origin of it. Yeah, I think at one point it was alleged, and I don't mm. think there's much evidence for this, but certainly I think that the idea was that it was claimed that Henry VIII wrote it, which is, <laughs> which is almost certainly not true. Uh, sure. uh, I just looked it up. Yeah, yeah, there is a persistent belief that Henry VIII composed it. Yeah, yeah. well, there we go. For his lover and future queen, Anne Boleyn. There you go. <laughs> uh, but, you know, once again, it, it, it ties into that idea of the, the world of Harry Potter mm. being sort of steeped in this renowned Renaissance, um, I guess, late medieval yeah. uh, music, and you have uh, you know the the melancholy music that has really nothing to do with with Hogwarts per se, or mm. even the film, um, steeped in that idea of you know green sleeves and and Renaissance mm. and and so on, and you know the recorders playing on the bridge as the solo instrument. Mm. They've really just Williams has just so beautifully tied in that sound world into a more modern orchestral sort of yeah. palette. That's so great. Definitely. Now we've got to talk about Sirius Black because he yes. is the titular character. <laughs> and what's interesting here is that he gets not really a theme, he gets a little motif. And it's one of those blink and you'll miss it kind of things, but it's there. And it's interesting, and I just thought of this, is because remember the first film where we talked about the stone, the philosopher's stone having its theme? Yep. It was three notes. Yep. Oh, I know where you're going with this. That's brilliant. Okay, here, Sirius Black's theme or motive, again, is three notes. It's like, you know, Philosopher's Stone, Prisoner of Azkaban. Yeah. It's just like, it's, just like, it's almost like it takes as long to say it the, as it plays the, the theme. Chamber, boom, boom, boom. The Chamber of Secrets has basically the Philosopher's Stone theme, but in, you yeah. know, with four, like, it doesn't have an added note. Um, da, 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 da. Yeah, sort of, yeah. 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 <laughs> um, so, yeah, I want to play a cue called Discussing Black. Uh, which has a bit of the uh, diegetic crumb horn wailing in the background. But after that, you'll hear this three-note kind of figure, dun, 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 uh, which is Black's motif. So that's it. It's just this little figure. Really mm. simple. And it's almost like, to me, I sort of think it feels trapped. And it starts one note, tries to get out of prison by going down, <laughs> and then tries to get out of prison by going up. And that's, <laughs> that's all it kind of gets. Never quite gets there. <laughs> Never quite gets there. But have a listen to this next cue because 
this is when the kids are reading the newspaper and they see that kind of animated, you know, picture mm. of black screaming. But it dawned on me that it actually sounds a lot like Voldemort's theme from the first film. And I'll, mm. you'll hear what I mean, which makes perfect sense because he's treated as like an alias of, of, mm. of, of Voldemort. He is Voldemort, really, yeah. in, in um, <coughs> For, mechanics. He's this film's, yeah, yeah he's this yeah. film's Voldemort. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I, that kind of makes sense. But you'll hear the little Voldemort feature at the end of this cue. You know, so one's going and the other one's going with two notes at the end. So very, very similar. And whether that's, you know, just William's language of evil, who knows? But um, there's definitely a little similarity Could it be there. that at this point we think that he's a notorious death eater? Yeah. He's one of Voldemort's sort of right-hand yeah. man, mm. you know. Mm. That really it's all coming from the same language as this. Yeah. This is a guy from the same, you know, gang yeah. as uh, as Voldemort. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. Totally. Yeah. yeah, totally. But it could also be the musical version. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the bad guy music. It's the bad guy music. Yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty much Black's, Black's theme. So it's really, really simple and it plays a few times. Um, and the other character we must talk about is Peter Pettigrew. Yes. Mm-hmm. We only see towards the end, otherwise known as Scabbers. Scabbers. I mean, he's Ron's, he's Ron's <laughs> rat. Yeah. Um, and he gets this really creepy harpsichord motif, which uh, kind of goes like this. It's just a, yeah, has a has a few repeated notes mm. with a little kind of figure at the end. Pretty simple, but when you think about it, it's the inverse of Sirius's theme because Sirius one is and Pettigrew's is. <laughs> so he just kind of like flips them, huh. and, and maybe there's there's some kind of I don't know internal yeah, logic or something. No, 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 absolutely, because because they think that uh, that Sirius Black uh, murdered what well, was involved in in the killing of, of the Pettigrew. parent yeah, yeah. of Pet- Pettigrew, yeah. Mm. And it turns out it was you know in many ways the other way around, or at least Pettigrew sort of framed or Sirius Black took the took the fall for yeah. him. Yeah, and and narratively speaking, we think Sirius is the villain, and it turns out Peter Pettigrew is the villain. So it's sort of you know they are doubles. Yeah. Um, well, in another cue, he kind of mixes and matches them. So the, he basically the serious one. He adds this sort of repeating note before it, so it's almost mm. like their their two themes or motives yeah. are kind of like skewing together and fighting against each other. Is that the Pettigrews? Now have a listen to the horns.
interesting little sort of yeah, smishing yeah. of those little mm. you know small intervals. There. I mean, up until this point, their you know their fates, their journeys are utterly intertwined. Yeah, each other is the reason why they're bleeding the life that they yep. currently are. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, it makes all the sense that there's the weird mirror images. They're both mm. um, what's the word for it? Animaguses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Animagi. Animagi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, along with Lupin, who mm. I don't think gets his own theme. No, he just gets a bit of jazz music playing. Yeah. His, <laughs> so maybe maybe he would have the three tones like all ascending or all yeah, descending. Yeah, maybe. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, as you know, as the members of uh, the the what are they? The Marauders? I mean, the yeah, the, I guess yeah. so. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, maybe that motif could also be like because it, it appears whenever Harry has the Marauders map. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it does feature when Pettigrew sort of turns mm. up at the end as well. So, mm. Interesting. Yeah, now, guys, what is your favourite cue from this film? <laughs> I know. Andrew, I'm going to start with you. Yeah. It is Buckbeak, well, Buckbeak's theme on the CD. What is it called? Buckbeak Buck takes Beak's flight. flight. Buckbeak's Buck flight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It used to be called Nicholas Buckbeak's flight. Really? <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the font uh, didn't fit on, yeah, the, on the album yeah, cover. Yeah, that's a shame, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know when I got I conducted this in concert and I got called Maestro Buckbeak? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was very proud of that moment. So. <laughs> no, this this is okay. So we we are going to play this one because yeah. this really is the the cue of the cue of the 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 movie, in my opinion. Yours as well, Dan? Or yeah, well, I mean, it's certainly the most. John Williams. Yeah. I mean, this really cements in, I mean, not that it needed any cementing no. at this point, that that Williams is the master of the flying queue. Of the flying queue, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, is there anyone else who comes close to writing a queue for no. flying? No. I mean, <laughs> this is this is the, the, the thing. And the way it, the where, where it sits compared to, I mean, everything we've played has been pretty small, chamber-like, yeah. very intimate, yep. you know, Little soloistic instruments. All of a sudden, this is the really you know a time where you get the whole orchestra playing a soaring melody. So it it really it, it has a shining moment in itself. There's no dialogue or anything. It's just it's Williams at his at his greatest. And check out his opening. <laughs> I, it is so good. It's so good. 
Uh, I mean, like it's uh, 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 firstly r- ridiculous that it's played like what twice or something in yeah. the movie. That this yeah. is you know such an incredible piece of music, and it's just like oh, he's like oh yeah, I'll chuck it in that scene. Yeah, mm. unbelievable. But you know what, like. It's just it's the orchestration because the mm. melody is I mean it's yeah. just like an arpeggio it just it just outlines a chord I play it like that. I mean, I, mean, you, I, I, you, I could be a five-year-old just sort of tinkering mm. in my little harmony exercise lesson here. Yeah. But it's it's the way he presents it and has all the stuff flying around. It's yeah, the brass underneath it. Yeah, yeah. And this wells. I mean, that's why we're talking about how it feels like flying music. You know, you don't have to see the scene to imagine what's going on. I think it's the uh, that sort of undercurrent of brass and woodwinds where they've got da 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 da, da you yeah, know it's, like it's, it's it's the motor yeah mm. yeah and it's and it's, I feel like it's all the swirl like not even swirling but it's the I feel like it's maybe the effort or the wind or the something that's flying underneath yeah. Buckbeak and then over the top you just have this uh, I, I say timeless meaning not. It's a classic, yeah. but I mean that it doesn't have that same drive, that same effort, you know, There's sort of going freedom on. freedom to it. Yeah. 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 It's like, you know, looking at a plane flying in the air. You know, mm. you know that it has a massive engine with all these circuitry and gears and oil and yep. petrol and stuff going on, but then you just look at it as a big chunk of metal and it's effortlessly flying. The sky. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And that's, that's, I think, what you can evaluate. I would love to here. hear a version of this theme performed without the string melody to just hear... Yeah, the sort of workings of the orchestra yeah. without that soaring feeling. On yeah, the because yep. the the orchestra is working hard underneath. Yeah, and like you said, Nick, I think that's what we're we're viewing. I mean, Buckbeak is a massive animal. Mm. It doesn't look like it, you know, r- really is doing it easy until it starts gliding, and mm. then you know, because I think when it takes off, it really sort of jerks around, and mm. and you know, it's a big effort to get it off the ground, and then when it's gliding, you get that melody, and mm. of course, we get the through the flutes and maybe even piccolo, you get those little bird tweets, yeah, they go tweet yeah. tweet tweet, you know, yeah. sort of all, <laughs> yeah. all floating around, and yeah. and you know, you don't need any sound effects, you don't need anything. This whole cue. Mm. Um, you know, tells the story, and it's the only time in the film where the, I believe, where the orchestra is just allowed to stretch its legs, and yeah. and we just watch some stuff happen. You know, there's not dialogue, there's not all this other no. stuff going on. There's a few. I mean, Quaron is pretty good at giving Williams space to breathe. I think there's a few versions of a window, window to the past which are fairly dialogueless, and there's mm-hmm. certainly a scene early on where the camera sort of gives a sweeping shot of Hogwarts, and it pans up through the glass window into I think the clock tower yeah, and yeah, yeah, there's yeah. no dialogue there yeah. so Quaron's pretty good at that but yeah, yeah. Nick you were going to uh, say yeah I think the closest thing to sort of hearing what this would sound like without the melody um, is sort of the opening of, of the second time we hear it where oh, yeah. the kids kind of come back and rescue Sirius um, and you really get those sort of fluttering woodwinds that creating that, that sense of motion and stuff before the melody joins later <laughs>
so on and so forth. Uh, and, and even that, you know, I mean, you described it as tracing out a chord, which it is. But I mean, even that has a kind of, in this context, has a kind of languorousness that's sort of like, yeah, like I'm so in control of flying that I'm just going to move up and down this this chord, yeah. this arpeggio. Like I don't need to do anything more than that. I don't need to make anything more rhythmic than that. It's just like here it is. Here yeah. it is. Yeah. Um, There's a gracefulness in just yeah. in simplicity. Yeah, and effortlessness in just yeah, just having the outline of the chord. Um, and of course, I think. I mean, you mentioned it briefly before we play, but the, the percussion at the start. I mean, it's ridiculous. What, what is all that about? I mean, this is. It, it comes in when um, Harry jumps on its on Buckbeak's back, and yeah. then they're starting to sort of trot forward. Yeah, well, it, it just as Buckbeak sort of starts running and takes off. Um, why? Why the the taiko drums and the whatever they are? <laughs> they're just yeah, tom it's tom toms and timpani. Yeah, right. Okay, yeah, just yeah. belting away. I don't know. Just I mean, is, William's having a bit of fun. Make something grand. It's sort of quite shocking. His mm. his father was a percussionist, wasn't it? His brother. Yeah. So it's I probably mean, his brother playing it. Yeah. Maybe uh, they had like a little rock paper scissors. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Johnny, if I win, you're writing me a massive timpani solo yeah. somewhere in this. Because film. there's nothing like that in any of the other Harry Potter films. No. no. And like barely any other yeah. William mm. score has got that huge just percussion solo. I mean, probably uh, Attack of the Clones. There's some sequences with heavy percussion, but that's about it, really. Yeah. Like, I mean, thinking narratively, is it that Buckbeak has already proven, you know, itself to be sort of a, a potentially dangerous creature mm. that needs a lot of respect? You and it's important to note that it's hard to predict what its nature will be at any given point. Yeah. And yeah. so when he jumps on the back, and then the taiko drums kick off it does feel potentially like what's going to happen, you know? Is this like a really yeah. dangerous thing that he's just done? Yeah. And then you juxtapose it by that glorious sort of um, melody. flying melody and now yeah. the flying melody is even more yeah. soaring and beautiful because you have started off in that place. Like an announcement. That... Yeah. 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 I mean, can you imagine the cue starting like this one? Nah. You know, yeah. like it'd be like... It would sound too kind of planned and gentle yeah. and yeah, just, then yeah, takes yeah, off. Yeah. But when you get this, oh, whoa, what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. It's like chaos. And then they, then they take off and, ah, oh, okay. I, it's going to be all right. as well that there's triplets there, that it's not just... Yeah, it really unsettles it before we get into the main theme. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's what it is. I think it needs something to... Work against, yeah, you know, later on, uh, because you know it also doesn't uh, work into a really nice um, intro to the melody either. It's sort of like all over the place, and there's like chromatic lines, and you've got the uh, the flutes there, sort of climbing up. You know, there's a real effort to sort of get up. Mm. Um, yeah. Anyway, glorious moment. Yeah. Glorious cue, and uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely gorgeous. I mean, the other sort of main reoccurring motif, I mean, we guess we really only can call it motif because there's not really much of a melody here, but there's some musical ideas that reoccur throughout the film and that is the music that's associated with the Dementors. And so we've got actually a few different parts to this and a few different styles. So we've got this kind of almost like horrific horror style Aleatoric string writing, like I assume it's aleatoric. It seems fairly random to yep, me. Yeah, no, it is. Um, aleatoric being, give us a definition, Nick. Um, aleatoric is sort of like very kind of random, 
I guess a little atonal, very effect based often. Yeah. You know, so if you're talking about aleatoric string writing, think about, you know, Indiana Jones, the sort of, you know, the crazy spider pizzicato. He's yeah. almost, it's almost like the strings are doing almost like random make it up on the spot. Kind yeah. Of so, so John Williams hasn't written down every single note perfectly. Yeah. He's, mm. he's given an effect, an idea, and then he's told the strings or whoever it is that's doing it to, um, I guess, improvise, to, yeah, to make yeah. things up in the style Sometimes of Sometimes composers call them cells. Mm. You know, they'll write a little square box, you know, mm. with like a few little ideas mm. and get 25 people doing their own interpretation of that. Yep. Voila. All at got, the same time. You've got sort of, you know, random aleatoric music. Yeah. So, okay, so we've got the strings, uh, which is sort of the first element of uh, the Dementors music. And, and you can hear that early on with the, the train sequence. Yeah, and I mean, you sort of get a bit of brass in there as well, uh, and some some woodwinds, I think, too. Close Encounters Mothership arrives. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's all I thought of when I heard that big low <laughs> yeah. tuba stab. Yeah, <laughs> is absolutely. It's those little bits that ba da da. I heard a bit of serious oh, yeah. black. Yeah, yeah. So all of the the you know the, the mm. yeah all the the little violin ba da da ba da It's like. Hints of Sirius Black, mm. which at this point we definitely don't know yeah. who Sirius Black is or what the deal is or whatever. Well, it's. well I mean, he has he has been warned that mm. you know he, he's like, don't go and search out Sirius Black. We don't know the backstory, but for all we know, if we haven't read the books, mm. the Dementors could be sent by Sirius Black or something yeah, like that. Totally, um, yeah, totally. We don't even really know what Dementors are when this cue plays. Yeah. Yeah. So you get his little theme sort of poking into yeah, it's their yeah, little Christmas. Their bit. Yeah, yeah. Could it be? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then you get kind of the other music, which is really associated with the Dementors, not because it's the Dementors necessarily themselves, but by association, which is the the music really for the for the Patronuses. Patroni? Patroni. Almost certainly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and this is this is the the choir music essentially that we get and you know there is one version of this we get late in the film uh which is in the the cue the patronus light Incredibly beautiful 
choir work there um, yeah. you know that reflects obviously the kind of ethereal nature of the the patronus um as the you know sort of light-filled animal that's conjured up um by in this scene he uh, harry thinking it's his father so it's kind of this is not so much the dementors music as what's used to fend off the dementors which yeah. is why it's still kind of associated with them but it also has a those pulses to it so it goes ah yeah because you have the Patronus, at least in the way it's portrayed in the film, mm. sort of a pulsing, pulsating light that sort of comes bursting out and it it, yeah. it doesn't push the Dementors away in a single explosion. It comes through in waves. Yeah. And the choir sort of has that pulse written into their part, yeah. uh, right. which is sort of a nice, you know, musical nod mm. uh, to that sort of, you know, magical effect. Yeah, yeah. yeah And yeah. it plays when, I think first, when Lupin sort of teaches Harry this Patronus spell. Yeah. Mm. Um, sort of being in his office there, sort of a smaller presentation of it. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, it sort of combines. I actually wonder if it's almost like <laughs> the, uh, the the dialectic of the Dementor. Um, the di- <laughs> this is possibly the, the most um, ridiculous academic uh, analogy I've made. Lay it on us. Do uh, it, I'm Dan, ready, do Dan. it. Dan. My body's ready. Dial- do it, Dr. Golding. The, the, <laughs> <laughs> the dialectic is... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the dialectic is, I think it comes from Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, but it was certainly adopted by Marx as like, basically it's like um, thesis, uh, antithesis and synthesis. And Marx used this in his material version of history that like there's a force that's opposed by another force and they create a new stage of history. So, so thesis, A, is met by B, um, antithesis, the opposite, mm. creates something C, right, through the combination of the two. So then between the Dementor's music, which is A, and the choir being the Patronus, being B, mm. then we get in the Dementor's Converge, which is kind of the really sort of, um, you know, uh, anxiety-filled conclusion really climax to the movie uh, we get the combination of the choir and the string work together uh, which creates this uh, you know really really interesting sound is you know i mean it's the, the musical climax really of the film i think this is where things go wrong this moment actually in the film um yeah 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 i think this is where things are sort of messing up big mm, time and yeah. of course you have the you know quite overt a window to the past yeah sort of blasting over the top so you've really yeah. got three ideas yeah, yeah happening which is what's happening on screen you've yeah. got the patronus you've got the dementors yeah. you've got yeah, the yeah. the idea that harry's dad has turned up yeah um so yeah and it's a bit cl- close encounters of the third kind as well I don't have an example to compare it to but definitely that combination of intense uh, orchestral effects with a kind of 
melody thrown completely out of place over the top is very reminiscent of Close Encounters. Totally. Now, guys, we've got to the end of the episode, but I've got good news. There's heaps more cues I want to listen to. Yes, <laughs> me too. So I think that's going to be the end of part one of our analysis of Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. We hope you enjoyed yourself. And if you did, please go ahead and press subscribe and write us a review on all of the places that you can write reviews on. And it will help us uh, greatly to get the word out there and to get more people listening to Art of the Score. And of course, word of mouth is our favourite way to get it out there. If you're really enjoying this, tell your friends, tell your family. So uh, please hit us up on all of the usual places on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, all Art of the Score and uh, we'll be sure to get back to you on that if you have any questions and so on. So until next time in part two, I'm Andrew Pogson, that's Dan Golding. I'm looking forward to coming back. And he's Nicholas Buck. This is me. (laughs) Jeez. And this was Art of the Score.